Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison, and we are very excited to welcome to the podcast for the first, but certainly not the last time, Lily Lynch. Lily has written for many places, but she has recently uh, become a writer for The New Statesman, and she's also the author of an article titled The Realists Were Right on the Ukraine War that we're here to discuss today. So, Lily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so why don't we just start with a question, um, which is how has the perspective on the war in Ukraine changed over time? Um, it's been a, a couple of years now, almost a year and a half ish. Um, and so obviously the war has been going on for a while and how people have reacted to it has changed and there's different constituencies. So why don't we start with talking about Ukraine itself and how within Ukraine uh, the perspective on the war has changed or hasn't? Oof. Um, well, I mean, I think that there was obviously for not just in Ukraine, but everywhere, the initial shock of, of, of the invasion in February um, 2022. Uh, and I think that the people of Ukraine were given from the outside an enormous amount of kind of hope from from the West um, and these uh, incredible commitments, which we're still seeing articulated about from the Biden administration, you know, as long as it takes, uh, and really kind of uh, granted this kind of, and I think, you know, in many ways deserved uh, narrative about, you know, heroism and, you know, resisting aggression and, uh, you know, their performance was so exceptional in the beginning um, and kind of defying the odds. Uh, I think that there was a kind of justified within Ukraine sense of sort of the stick David versus Goliath that was repeated elsewhere. But but within Ukraine, I think that that was felt. Although, the, although of course, in the outset, there was also a lot of frustration about, you know, that the West was not doing enough, that they weren't closing the skies, so to speak. There was a lot of uh, reticence in certain uh, European capitals, such as Germany, uh, and um and there were some really, really um, incredible kind of uh, military victories um, in the first year. But then I would say, you know, we had this ex- in the spring, like very early spring of um, this year, we were told, you know, that there was going to be a, a counteroffensive and it was very much hyped up. And I think it was hyped up within Ukraine, although I was mostly observing the, the Western media's um, kind of response in, the, in my article. But from what I understand, you know, there was uh, a lot of also hope uh, still riding on the fumes of that, of that first year of, of excellent performance. Um, and then I think uh, at, at the same time, however, I want to I want to stress that even though there was this sort of optimism within Ukraine that they could defeat Russia simultaneously, there were tens of thousands of men fleeing martial law that was imposed by Zelensky two days after the invasion started or within yeah, within 48 hours, uh, where all men between 18 and 60 like, were you know, not allowed to leave Ukraine. Um, and But it, you had, during that time, I mean, I, we all know, all of us who have friends in Ukraine, I lived in Ukraine 2014, 2015, you know, during the first war, 
uh, first kind of when the first wars first started, uh, you know, I know I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. And so anecdotally, um, all of my male friends in Ukraine are in Western Europe and have been in Western Europe since at least summertime. So this was something that it was happening while this uh, sense of optimism was there. It was sort of somebody else will fight. You know, I have a reason to be in Western Europe. I will, you know, to, to flee. Like I have a family and all very understandable, all very like, legitimate. And I, you know, I obviously support my friends being out, but um, this is going on on a massive scale. Um, and in certain cities like Odessa, I, I've heard in the last, say, um, six months or so, especially, uh, you've had the these telegram channels that have sprung up. There's one that has like 30,000 members where in, in, in just for Odessa, where there are men notifying each other, like, Hey, the, the olives, I think is what they call them. These are the military recruitment officers that everybody is trying to avoid. Hey, they're at this address or they're, they're here. And so they're men who are helping each other evade military service. So to step back a little bit, uh, in the beginning, you know, all of the men who really wanted to fight signed up, you know, men who are really patriotic and like were very drawn to the idea of like, you know, fighting for their country. And many of them have died, you know, or are very badly injured and can no longer fight. So what is happening now and what has been happening in the last uh, several months and during this kind of counteroffensive that took a very, 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 very long time to start is you have most of the men who are fighting now have been for, are basically being forced to fight. So these are not willing conscripts. Um, and so anyway, this counteroffensive kind of starts, uh, I can't even really, it, it, like, it came on so kind of glacially and so de- in such a delayed manner um, that I kind of can't even like put a direct date on like when it started, but because it almost never really arrived. Uh, but it's just the this like counteroffensive um that everybody had hoped would make tremendous gains uh, before the rainy season starts, which I think is in, any, you know, in a month or something, uh, has failed to yield anything meaningful. And you now have you know, public opinion in Ukraine uh, or the kind of sense of um, exhaustion, from what I understand, morale is now very low compared to where it was in the beginning. Of course, you know, that's, that's unfortunately how it is. You know, you have men who are don't want to fight, who are being forced to fight. And when you have um, a lot of disappointments and frustrations with the with the West, uh, with Washington, and um, a lot of disappointments about Western military equipment and its sort of uh, ability to kind of change the game. And also a realization, I think, within Ukraine that the Russians, you know, can adapt and have adapted their strategy. And so... In general, you just have this sort of, um, from my understanding of it, um, the the this a very exhausted and very sort of demoralized population that nonetheless does not want to make any concessions and doesn't isn't ready for negotiations. Feels very aggrieved, you know, and of course justifiably in in, in many ways. Lily, I have so many follow up questions for that, but uh, let's start with disappointment in in Western arms. Is the disappointment around the way that these these armaments are performing or around the speed with which they're being delivered or uh, the, let's say, uh, size of the consignments. You hear these big, you know, oh, we finally broken through. We're going to send tanks to Ukraine. We're going to send three tanks to Ukraine. I mean, it's it's always 
something much less than the announcement that the hype seems to to indicate. So I'm curious, uh, you know, there's many different ways I think the Ukrainians could be disappointed in the support that they've gotten. Is it is it performance or is it more in terms of the logistics and the the way that they're receiving this stuff? Yeah, I think it's all of it. I think that there, um, I think there was a really a huge gap between how there's a sense of a kind of military superiority that the, the West must have the best stuff, the U.S. Has the, must have the best stuff, and it didn't do wasn't the game changer that I think a lot of people had hoped. And it was also, as you said, you know, the number of tanks that would be announced would end up being like a fraction of what it actually would be, or this kind of, and also like delays. Uh, with with um, the arrival of certain things. And so I, I think that it was, and also I think there's a, a sort of disappointment in the, even just the kind of understanding of Western partners and the kind of misalignment with uh, sort of understanding military strategy. And there's, you've, you've seen these comments from kind of people in Washington complaining about Ukrainians saying that they have Soviet tactics, you know, and they're like, you know, this is, this is like one of the things that we're going to kind of pin on them is that they're, they're hopeless because they're, they're Soviet, you know? And I, so I think that there's a frustration disappointment with also Western partners uh, and they're, but yeah, but the, with the, um, with the arms, it's, has not uh, ended up, creating a dramatic difference and also it hasn't been in their in their eyes it hasn't been enough let's let's talk about that for a second because there was uh, about the the rhetoric that's that started coming out here there was a lot of hype built up into this uh spring counteroffensive that was going to be done with western weapons western training and combined arms warfare this is going to change the uh the battlefield the expectation i think uh, you know even even with you know western uh, leaders, governments trying to temper things a, a little bit rhetorically. I think the expectation was that this would go just as well as the the Kharkiv situation yeah. went, or the, you know that that offensive went, or is uh, you know the the takeover of, of or the recapture of most of Kherson went. Which um, you know we can get into the reasons why that was delusional, but um, just in terms of what what we've seen governments saying now, the pivot has been from you know. It's okay. It's taking time. It doesn't matter. Just wait. You be patient. To the reason that this isn't working is because the Ukrainians are doing it wrong. And by doing it wrong, we mean they're not throwing soldiers into the line to die to open breaches, maybe in the Russian defensive lines. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is actually behind? Like, if you actually scratch the surface of what this criticism is it, it amounts to like they're too in love with being alive basically right and, and what that means uh, or what that how that has has landed uh, among ukrainians and, and ukrainian soldiers well i mean i can i think it's landed the way that we might imagine you know these uh people in washington don't understand us and don't you know i think that um uh, they feel certainly that they have made tremendous sacrifices in terms of personnel and men, and they have. I mean, the, if you look at the casualty figures, I haven't looked at updated casualty figures since I wrote the article, but I think it's it, I, it, it, it's astonishing. It's really, really bad. Um, I think what was the figure? It's like 100,000 wounded and uh, killed. That was in August, I suppose. But um, 
Uh, so I would think that the Ukrainians feel that they have made tremendous sacrifices. Uh, I would also think that there's, again, this kind of um, uh, uh, um, uh, difference in uh, what is imp considered important also. Like, I, I think that there's the... Um, the Americans have kind of wanted the Ukrainians to focus on uh, one specific area, whereas the Ukrainians are more diffuse, like kind of all over. Um, and so there have just been different different ideas about strategy. But this, um, but yeah, this comment in this one article, I know what you're talking about, where the Ukrainians are chastised for not throwing men into like the, the meat grinder was really shocking. Is is there any um, as I read that stuff and I you know have have observed this it it has been uh, it has occurred to me over and over again that what what U.S. critics now of of how the Ukrainians are fighting this war what they're asking the Ukrainians to do is something that the U.S. military itself would never do which is to throw ground forces into an area where they don't have absolute air superiority. Right, right. Um, and, and not only do they not have absolute air superiority, they're, they're, the Russians control that airspace. Uh, it's contested, but the Russians have, have a better position than the Ukrainians do. And is that something that Ukrainians, do you think, are, are aware of, that they're being, like the demand that's coming out of, out of Washington here uh, is something that it would not do with its own forces it's, it's sort of demanding the ukrainians risk their lives in a way that u.s soldiers wouldn't wow i haven't actually had that conversation but i mean i think that it's a completely valid point you know but that's um hadn't quite thought about it that way but of course politically that would be you know suicidal for our leadership in any kind of war and um certainly we're finally starting to see like Zelensky kind of caring about, I don't, I don't like with its like specter of sort of elect, maybe an election will be held or not. Yeah. It's a good question. Would they um, like, do they feel this resentment that they're being asked to sacrifice more than Americans would? I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I will ask, um, but it's actually, it's difficult you know, my, again, as I mentioned, I, the, the Ukrainians I know are, have left and, they're a bit sensitive talking about that kind of thing because they don't like the idea of being feeling like they, they you know, or a traitor or, or left the country. So. So I think this might be a natural place to talk about the West's um, changing attitudes toward uh, the war. And we're recording this on October 12th. Before we do, actually, Derek, might you just say quickly, like, where funding stands so people understand where we are now, and then we could talk about where we were at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, the funding in the U.S. is running out unless Congress, um, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, it's it's hilarious to watch. I mean, they're completely incapable of governing at this point. Uh, the Republican Party in particular is just a dysfunctional mess. Uh, they can't agree on a speaker even to do any business, let alone. Uh, but they they have passed. I mean, they're in the middle of another one of our epic shutdown sagas, which are just lovely. Uh, they always happen at the around the holidays. And they have passed. They, they passed a 45 day continuing resolution that didn't include any extra Ukraine money, which means that the government, the, the Biden administration is running out of Ukraine funding. They're appealing to Congress to appropriate more. 
there's a big, you know, there was a briefing yesterday. John Kirby, the spokesperson for the National Security Council, uh, went on and on about this and the need for for Congress to uh, appropriate more Ukraine money and that we're running out and we can't do things like long term planning because there's there's no money left. So, you know, they're they're trying and, and there's been talk of tying. I know, you know, we don't want to get in, obviously, to the war in Gaza, but there's been talk of tying aid to Israel, uh, funding for border security, which is, of course, the fetish of, of you know, a number of Republicans, uh, tying some of those things to Ukraine funding uh, to try and get Ukraine funding passed. But it, it really is a, a tough sell for a, a, a enough of a portion of the House Republicans that uh, it, it may not go through. And if, if it doesn't, then they're going to have to try some uh, tricks or something to, to keep the money going because they, they won't have uh, any new appropriations. So I think that, uh, Lily, maybe you could talk about where the West started with this war and how you've wound up in this situation about a year and a half later. Well, um, well I think we all remember the early days of the war, which were, you know, kind of filled with, filled with a lot of this sort of uh, a lot of like mismaking almost happening in, happening in live time where you um, had ghosts of Kiev and, you know, grandmothers like deflecting like, I don't know, dr- drones, like jars of pickles. I remember some very interesting kind of stories about um, that seemed kind of um, to, again, reinforce the sort of like David and Goliath narrative. Um, and uh, this this idea of like you know Western unity was also really essential to in those early days. This unprecedented Western unity, and of course, you had two historically semi-neutral, uh, officially neutral countries, Finland and Sweden, who you know applied to join NATO rather quickly under very kind of shock doctrine conditions. Uh, without a referendum, even though countries like Sweden have always historically held, held referendums for things like the adoption of the euro or um, the uh, joining the EU, this was kind of a again um, referred to as sort of like a shock doctrine, like war, uh, wartime approach. So there was this sense of sort of uh, Patrick Porter, the IR um, uh, guy, who I like to quote. He's great. He said, you know, in initially where there was this like you know sense of revulsion and like horror. And so there was this tent, there's this obvious tendency to go towards like maximalist aspirations. And this, this was reflected in the kind of reporting that we saw too, you know, really uh, just very um, almost setting Ukraine up for failure in my, in my opinion. And, uh, and this was something that was warned. The, the realists were right about this. They, they were warning that like the West cannot sustain the level of sort of um, either attention, enthusiasm, money, this is all being kind of massively overdone. And, you know, the, there will be consequences down the line. So, yeah, you have this, this like kind of a narrative of heroism, this sort of like you know, this Zelensky, the kind of like, you know, the, the new uh, figure defying like authoritarianism and like kind of fighting for the entire West, for the entire, for Europe, for European values uh, against authoritarianism. And so it was just this, this kind of like um, a very sort of nice story that was sold to the, kind of the Western public. And I think a lot of 
I mean, I wasn't in America for, for the entire time, but I, I visited home and I saw that the, you know, the way that it was, the war was being kind of consumed there. It was well, well some heroes, I won't name names, were able to understand where this war was likely going to go and maintained a coherent position from the beginning. You know, some people just stand on the shoulders of giants to see history clearly. Yeah. But uh, not everyone could be expected to have such a vision. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Yeah, we know who, uh, yeah, the stream will vindicate them. <laughs> so, um, I mean, they're already being vindicated now. So the realists are right, as we say, as I say in the, um, in the headline. So, so, yeah, then I would say that there was this odd, just really, this is, this is what inspired me to write the article, this very noticeable souring uh, in the summer. Uh, in in the Western kind of media, and then of course that's the media is reflecting what they're told by like anonymous leakers, you know, Pentagon and different uh, people in Washington. So the mood darkened. It was very, very kind of across the board, and it felt like it was you know every possible Ukraine was being criticized in a way I couldn't even have ever imagined it being criticized in the first year of the war. You know, criticized for things like jailing conscientious objectors and Zelensky being criticized for making corruption like a wartime. No, I think it was, it's like now you're a traitor if you engage in corruption or something like that. Something, something very, uh, very draconian. And this, again, I think that this kind of is supposed to be a message to the West. And then even recently, since I've written this article, you had this leak to Politico, which was, about how Washington is much more worried about corruption in Ukraine than we all thought. You know, but we, you know, if, again, you know, if you spend any time in Ukraine or if you've been following the war from afar, even like you know that this is a huge problem. And I remember, I remember, you know, saying this very early in the war. You know, like I've observed corruption in Ukraine, like and on Twitter and people, you know immediately being attacked by like a gang of NAFO dog, dog uh, guys and piled on. And, you know, now this is out in the open. Now this is in you know, very mainstream publications about how this is a, a like considered a, a problem in, in uh, as we all knew that. But so yeah, the, the, the mood really shifted over the summer. Uh, Zelensky being um, criticized and the, this kind of admission finally that men are fleeing the country, which calls into question something that we've heard from the very, very beginning. And this is like a very controversial point that I make in the article, which is we've heard this entire time, but the Ukrainians want to fight. We hear this all the time. Us, you know, people who are maybe some critics of of the way that the war has gone in the West, um, say involvement or fanning the flames, uh, we're always told, but you know, you shouldn't speak over Ukrainians. Ukrainians want to fight. And it, so for me, when I see these, this like, you know, all of these articles, all of this information about just, just across the border with Romania alone, having tens of thousands of men flee just that border and 90 something men as of June, we don't know how many more uh, died, so died trying to get out in the mountains, freezing to death or drowning in the river that it's on the border. Um, and that's just a Romanian border. I mean, we don't know how many men from Ukraine or in, in Western Europe or, or here. I see men uh, driving like Mercedes SUVs, men of military age, and, and uh, who are 
with Ukrainian slaves. So um, they're all over. And I guess so. So I, I, I think it's, you know, you have to ask at a certain point, like if, if we're being told in the West and being like critics of the war kind of of um, US, the Western involvement are being told like, you know, you shouldn't speak over Ukrainians, Ukrainian voices should be amplified. You know, we're not hearing from those guys. We're not hearing from those men who don't want to fight, you know, and they're, um, you know, so if, if we're being told that Ukrainians want to fight, I think it's important to bring up the fact that like there's an enormous amount of men in, in Western Europe who don't want to fight. And there's an, an incredibly large number of men in Ukraine who are trying their best to evade conscription using all kinds of tools, like I mentioned before about um, telegram channels warning each other. So, you know, what do you do with that? Uh, information. So there's that kind of reality, I think, started to come into play in Western media. And so, yeah, just an overall picture of the counteroffensive has not done anything near what it was supposed to do. And it, it's even with the goalposts radically scaled back, you know, it, it had done done much. And uh, the, again, this overall picture of like declining morale and, you know, kind of Zelensky even being knocked off his pedestal. So that's been the kind of shape of media attention. Lily, just a question, um, a first question, and then it'll depend if I ask the next question. Have you paid attention at all to like the quote unquote progressive discussion about Ukraine? Like you mean the among sort of like liberal boosters? Yeah, liberals and leftists, because it was it was just surprising to me how so many left liberals and leftists immediately lined up behind the US empire. Oh totally. Sending sending weapons to uh, Ukraine for now and forever. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts as someone who pays attention to foreign policy on like the state of progressive discourse and what the war revealed to you about, you know, that. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, that, that's like a whole episode. Uh, I mean, really what the war revealed was something that I kind of, it, it confirmed what I already knew from covering this part of the world where I currently live in the Balkans, which is that, you know, you, Criticizing, for example, NATO is some asking for real problems, um, and that you know there's a uh, a sort of expectation that um, yeah that there's certain kind of third rail subjects that you're not allowed to touch, um, and you know we all know that the criticizing the way that the war has gone or endless furnishment of military supplies to Ukraine immediately gets you labeled. It incurs like very difficult and painful attacks. You know, this article, I don't know if you guys saw the Twitter response to this article, the one that we're talking about, you know, it was 10 days of a campaign of just thousands and thousands of people attacking me and bringing up, you know, so I've experienced it personally, that this, this kind of, um, or these coordinated attacks. And again, these are mostly kind of, I would assume, Democrats. But even, yeah, but certainly among among the left, uh, there's not a lot of, there's a pretty small number of people who I think have very pretty reasonable opinions about the war and are not like pro-Russia. I mean, I live in Serbia, so I'm very like kind of saturated in like a very pro-Russian environment. It's openly supportive of the, the, the war. Uh, Russia's side. 
but there are people who like in, in our sort of people like you guys who are who are critical of, of Western involvement but aren't uh, like Putinists, you know, or are not like ideologically like aligned with Putin. It's, it's a very small number of people who are reasonable, and it was very lonely. I think. No, for for sure. And and this might be a good time to ask this question. I hope it is because I'm about to ask it. How did what was the response to your piece? And how did this reflect these larger structural trends? It was the most the most I've ever been attacked ever for writing anything. And I cover the Balkans. So I, I was like, I thought I was seeing it all, you know. I I I cover like I it was it was brutal. I mean, I had yeah, again, like I had, I couldn't really use social media for about 10 days uh, because it, it was just use, useless for me. There's no utility in it because it was just constant. Um, even people who, whose work, like totally separately from Ukraine, people whose photography I retweeted, like they were, comments were left under their tweets. Like, are you happy to be um, you know, tweeted by or retweeted by a genocide supporter, you know, being it's always this like automatic uh, use of the most extreme language possible. Like there's always the use of the word genocide. Uh, you're, you support genocide if you are questioning like unlimited like you know, military arming of, of Ukraine, if you question NATO enlargement. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I was stunned. I was stunned by the reaction. And like, I, again, it's not my first rodeo, but this, this was the worst. And it took, took about two weeks to fully like kind of come out of the shock of it because I couldn't, I mean, I was, I kind of know how to deal with it now. I just step away from the computer for a while and I don't react like, but um, yeah, I I thought it was a really non-controversial piece. Like I was, it was an article about articles. I didn't do any independent, I wasn't on the ground in Ukraine reporting about anything that was new, it was simply observing media narratives and putting together existing uh, articles in very, very mainstream publications. Some of the most shocking comments I got, you know, people emailing me, you know, telling me that the New York Times is is pro-Russia. You know, I'm telling people, like, okay, I I was writing about, you know, I was, again, again, it was an article about articles. I'm writing about articles that are in the Washington Post and the New York Times, and the response that I would get when I would say that is like, well, those those publications are, are printing like Putin propaganda. It's like the, this is a level of like kind of liberal delusion that is just crazy. Yeah, but it was it was an insane response. Even the this um, former CIA guy with like a quarter of a million followers who like loves to flaunt the fact that he's a former like clandestine services guy. Like my tweet was my first piece for the new statesman and like he comments it should be your last like or i imagined him saying it in like this deep voice like very ominous like it should be your last article it's been vaguely threatening and he knows as a cia guy like how that is going to sound a little off you know yeah, it's funny. I'm not worried about CIA guys today. Like the guys who went from like the OSS and like jumping behind German lines. But what did these CIA guys do? Who 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 cares? Total, I don't, you know, I don't know. They're weak. They're, totally <laughs> they're, they're weak. <laughs> <laughs> they're not like the badasses of like 1946. Right. Yeah, you know, it's like I, they're I, I spearheaded an operation to pay people to tweet about <laughs> yeah. the war. Like that's my you know. I did that's some my narco trafficking work. in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, it's not right. like I jump behind the not 
Nazi lines, you know? Right. It's like, oh, these guys. Everything's first is tragedy, then is force. (laughs) It's sad. And you can tell by the way they act on social media. You're like, I'm not a... I, I these guys are totally weak. Like I Yeah, like James Jesus Angleton would not have done that. You know, right. William Colby yeah. would not have done that. These guys were tr- those guys were true psychos. Totally. You know, they don't they didn't it's need to interesting and smart. These guys are right. not that smart. No, that's the thing. That's also something that's very difficult to talk about there. But there has been a degradation in those types of intelligence officers. I mean, it makes sense, you know, after a mass war, which recruits everyone, you're going to have the cream rise to the top. And really, people who are able to create a globe spanning world empire and do things like overthrow governments successfully in Guatemala and Iran and have these things last. But the guys today, they're jokes. You know, there's just been a failure for 30, 40 years of, of, of even the, the, the nefarious purposes of U.S. foreign policy. And it's a degradation of the quality of, <laughs> of agents, which is why I, I, the left always hates me for this. Uh, they always yell at me about this one. But this is why I think like we, we spend way too much time worrying about, you know, so-called spooks right. and not worried about the larger structural conditions that actually make things because they're thinking about like 1962. It's not the same right. quality of agent in 2023. I promise you, you know, like the, the, yeah. the guys at the Ivy League schools become consultants. They don't go to the CIA. Um, right. So, right. It yeah. doesn't have the same attraction or draw anymore. It's like with all kinds of a lot of the kind of government jobs, a lot of those people exactly. that, that want to work. It's a degradation of quality, yeah, yes. for sure. They're recruiting kind of medi- very mediocre people. Um, and yeah, I know I, I, I was seeing some of these guys, you know, posting like Harry Potter memes. And I was like, this is, this is all you got? Like, we're screwed. I mean, like, you know, I don't know, like, this is crazy. Like, this is embarrassing. You know, this is, uh, we need a better, more insane security. State. Right. right. Maybe a security state that. America could be proud of. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, I, I, if you think about like, yeah, during the sixties that they were like really doing some like weird evil shit with like, you know, like uh, art and, you know, literature magazines. I mean, I can't imagine these kinds of people, like doing that. They never would. They're, there's no quality. There's just a de- full degradation of quality. Yeah. Well, but yeah, it was, a, it was an experience. It was an experience. And actually, I'm glad I went through it uh, because now I kind of know how to deal with it. And again, it's just like, you just step away from the computer. You just don't engage. Like it's for me. And I know that there's always the choice. You can always, you can like fight. And I, I think that could sometimes be effective if you're like quick on your feet and you're like, you're good at like fighting but I was at the Venice Film Festival when this was happening, and I was like, I'm not going to waste my time. Like, it's, not, like, it's not worth it. It also goes away, which is so, yeah. like, people scream at you for three days, and then it disappears into the ether. It's t- t- never apologize because a public apology is not a real apology, and just ignore it, and it goes away. Those are my two rules for uh, at, yeah. writing and being online. <laughs> yeah. No one wants your apology. They just want to destroy you, so never apologize. <laughs> for anyone never, listening that's a tr- that's a truth yeah i'm i'm that's also a very important one for me yeah <laughs> lily i i mean we could spend uh, could spend a full interview talking about the gutter that online has been with regard to this war in particular it's just it's Ooh. fascinating just the worst people most reprehensible people you could imagine. But I, I want to kind of come back to one of the key players in all of this, which is uh, Volodymyr Zelensky himself. Um, he's playing, I mean, you know, this is somebody who is 
literally an actor and he's playing a role yeah. and he has to play a role to to drum up international support to be uh you know to be appealing constantly for aid to to continue the war effort um but i wonder if he's uh and and i think this is more true in europe than it is in the us but it's been there's been some uh, indication of it in the us as well if he's maybe starting to uh, wear people out with this constant kind of scolding uh, lecturing, demanding this and that, and uh, it, it it feels like there's a there's an increasingly short fuse with this uh, because you know everybody feels like they have been supporting. Uh, you know, we can argue about how much or, or whether it's been adequate, but um, it feels like he's he's maybe rubbing people the wrong way, and we see it. Um, not just in the realm of arms, but now this this dispute over Ukrainian grain exports coming through Europe, and you have the the, the Polish government and uh, you know other neighbors saying, well, "We don't want this coming through our territory. It's going to flood the market and you know wreck our farmers." And you know we all love the farmers, don't we, folks? And still, like the response is to lecture these these people on you know you have to do this. You're morally bankrupt if you don't you know. Uh, accept our products or whatever. Um, what is your sense of this? You know, as somebody who's who's in Europe watching uh, these these things unfold, of, of how whether people are running out of patience with Zelensky, I guess, would be the the main thrust of my question. Absolutely right. You're you're spot on. Um, there is a total backlash from what we expected would sort of be Ukraine's greatest supporters in Poland and Slovakia. You saw the the kind of um, NATO critical candidate Biko won two weeks ago, uh, two weekends ago. I mean, he's openly against sending aid to Ukraine. So Slovakia, and there's this, um, uh, the, the Hungarians don't want, are not, they don't, they don't want any any part of it. They're very critical of how the war has gone. Um, and uh, Poland, obviously, in the kind of most spectacular fashion of this kind of almost, yeah, public public feud. Um, and um, uh, there is extreme uh, Zelensky fatigue, uh, I think, across Europe. We even saw, you know, I think we started to see this very clearly at the Vilnius summit in July, which I, I wrote about when we left the view a bit about this, like this early sort of, well, not early Fisher, but it was like a really clear example. Of course, Zelensky really, and, and along with several um Central and uh, Eastern European countries, like like the Baltic states, you know, the um, the French and Serbia is calling them Chihuahua countries, like because they're very kind of loud and they like uh, are always looking for like the most kind of extreme, uh, the most extreme policy. They wanted an uh, a an, ex- an exact accession um, uh, plan for Ukraine. Like I guess um, they knew Ukraine was unlikely to like be granted NATO membership, but they wanted that timeline. Germany and the U.S. were against it, uh, so it was never a real possibility in the first place. But Zelensky's reaction was to take to Twitter immediately and say this is unprecedented, irresponsible. I can't remember the exact words, but he was furious and he was public about it. And um, I remember in the U.K., you know, the response was, you're ungrateful, like there, that was the word. Like ingratitude was like the, this, and um, and there's this sense in Europe, especially where you know Germany is in a recession. Like that, 
hey, we're all sacrificing for you. Like we're sacrificing our economies. Um, we're sacrificing. Uh, um, we've we've already we've, like we're depleting our you know reserves of our own military equipment. We're doing it uh, all for you, and yet you and you're asking us to support a war where there's no now increasingly looking like no pathway to meet your maximalist goals. Total Ukraine fatigue. If you look at like the um, percentage of people who support, for example, continuing to furnish um, aid to even Ukrainian refugees in Poland. And you would think from the beginning of the war, Poland was kind of the biggest defender of Ukraine, or really pushing the, the most for, for, for Ukraine. And now that's like flipped. You know, it, it, it's uh, you have the support for giving Ukraine um, more aid is less than half of the population wants to continue in 2024. Uh, for uh, for for refugees, um, uh, which are like over a million people, um, and among young, it's very interesting. Among young people, it's considerably lower than that. So there's just this real, real um, frustration, and I think Zelensky is the figure is is kind of the figurehead who's like becoming increasingly detested. Uh, I, I know that when he visited Warsaw. This spring, uh, Ukraine, um, Polish farmers who, of course, because of this, um, all of this Ukrainian grain that was flooding Poland and there was a glut and prices like of domestic uh, uh, grain plummeted. A lot of farmers that they were on, teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, they threatened to like interrupt his meeting in Warsaw, Zelensky's meeting in Warsaw. Uh, and were protesting in the streets, and it um, wasn't covered very much, a little bit in, in Western media. Um, and then you had uh, this uh, Poland's um, like agricultural minister sitting on a, a panel that was pelted with eggs. Uh, so this has been this frustration has been growing, and yes, for sure, Zelensky's approach. I think increasingly is rubbing people the wrong way. And this sort of, yeah, the sense of ingratitude is frustrating a lot of people. And, and I think that, that the kind of heroism, even, even the the sort of like the swagger and the the military fatigues is like really kind of really like, you know, appealing to kind of, I guess, like a lot of like liberals in the, in the West in the beginning is now really not having the same. I I mean, I, I would say, you know, even in the U.S., there's some some Ukraine fatigue, or, or kind of a lot of it. I was actually just looking at the numbers. You know, 59% of the Republican voters say the U.S. has already given too much to Ukraine. Um, it's very, uh, the numbers for Democrats are, are different. I, I'll be very curious to see how those numbers look after, you know, talking about uh, what's going on in Gaza but I wonder- let's actually end. Let's end on that oh. because obviously this will be out in the next few days. So so things are um, subject to change. But the American public is fickle. It moves from one thing to another. Um, and now there is a you know, people get bored of the show right. and people are bored of Ukraine. And now there's a more exciting show in Israel, Palestine. And it really allows all sorts of moral posturing that people love doing in our era of alienation and disconnection online. <clears throat> so how do you think um, this might shape the U.S. approach to Ukraine? Republican 
you know, affiliated people are already kind of against funding. Um, but now the Democrats uh, may have to rethink some things. Or uh, what, what do you think is going to happen here? Well, uh, I've heard two different arguments. I've been kind of following these arguments in some of those realist circles on, on Twitter. You know, some are saying this is going to be really, for those of us who said there would be trade-offs uh, from the beginning in, in, in like, giving this kind of funding from free Ukraine that we've given, we're going to be vindicated because there, there is going to be a kind of reckoning. Like we're not going to be able to continue to sustain both Ukraine and, and um, Israel at the, at the level we'll need. And I think um, we'll probably that'll probably be reflected in public opinion. Though I saw one person suggest, and this is interesting, that the that it actually could do the opposite. There could just be a general loosening up of the idea that hey, we need to actually just really ramp up spending on on for we we we're like we're so horrified by whatever is happening in the world. We need to actually like just focus exclusively on like military aid or not exclusively, of course, but like we need to really ramp up military aid wherever, well, because I don't know. I don't, I don't, we already see a lot of liberals trying to connect uh, Russia with the, with what's happening in, in Israel, Palestine. So I don't know. I have, I don't know how it's going to go. I think it could go either direction. And I think that a lot of these Republicans who are kind of posturing as like, you know, against, um, you know, excess military aid abroad are now, you know, are now suddenly like showing that they're quite happy with it when it's going to Israel. But whether, I don't know, I don't know who's going to win that. I don't know. I'm curious about what you guys think about that. Derek, you go first, because I'm curious what you think too. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't see an end to, to support for Ukraine in sight. I got to be honest. I know that there's a snafu that they're in right now, but I, I, I feel like they'll get out of it. I just I just can't imagine um, there. There's going to be a diversion of attention, I guess. Um, but that's going to I don't know that that's an interesting thing. It could go a, a lot of different ways because there's going to be a lot of video and a lot of pictures that start coming out very soon uh, of some awful things happening in Gaza. And I don't think people are going to want to look at that stuff and they'll do, they'll still do their moral posturing, but it's going to get harder, I think, uh, as this goes on. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not as sure that attention's going to completely, uh, move off of Ukraine. I mean, you know, you, you always get, uh, some diminished, some diminishing and it, it's become a partisan issue, I guess is, uh, is is what I would say. Like the a lot of the loss of support uh, in polling, I think, is is more about the presidential election and and Republicans right, souring. What, or I mean, they're already souring exactly. on Biden, but obviously, but but you know, Republicans just rejecting anything that that a Democratic president does. And if right. uh, you know, depending on who you know, winds up running, and Biden's very vulnerable. If it's Trump, uh, you know, who knows? I, I, Trump is so incoherent these days. I don't know what he thinks about anything, but. Uh, yeah, so I guess my my answer is I don't I don't see this really moving things at least for for the short term. 
very much. I think it's I think it's going to depend on um, a presidential election and how these plays politically. Yeah. Um, I think Biden's going to come out of the gate and present himself as the defender of Ukraine. Uh, and it will it will totally see uh, it'll totally depend on what happens with that response. Kind of similar to DeSantis abandoning the anti-woke stuff mm-hmm. once it like didn't work. Right. He's like, OK, I'm not using this. So I think it's that's that's going to be the major issue. And so the question is, are Americans going to be focused on Israel-Palestine for a time uh, and they're not going to really care about Ukraine any longer? I don't know. But I think like Lily pointed to, um, like you pointed to in your piece, the president's election, I think, is going to be the, the determining factor. Um, I If this war goes on for three year, more years, I don't see the U.S. funding that indefinitely like that for another year, perhaps. But I do think there's it's only been a year and a half. Right. Uh, and if it's already reaching these levels of dissatisfaction, the U.S. has also historically just stopped doing stuff like this sometimes based on you know, domestic political situations. And that's what I think will probably happen is that there'll be this like, OK, now we're not doing it. Uh, and that'll be that. That that uh, When that happens, I don't know. Lily. Oh, yeah. It just occurred to me. I was talking to somebody from uh, about the EU and about this idea that in the event of the U.S., say, withdrawing from you. Ukraine aid, the Ukraine aid, because say Trump wins, and, and uh, but which is what Europeans are very, very nervous about. Um, uh, this idea can can Europe take the fill in for the U.S. And I just saw Zelensky today was in a meeting with uh, in in Western Europe, I think he was in Paris, saying, you know, uh, Europe needs to be militarily independent and autonomous from the United States. Uh, and this is clearly a response to the, uh, the fact that the election is coming up. You know, he's like, you guys need to uh, to step up. And and this uh, this guy who's a, like one of the great historians of the EU was like, that's there's no way that Europe can or he would say not even should really like be feeling that uh, should do that. And he thinks that instead, because otherwise it'll make the EU it'll the EU is going to look even weaker than it already looks, which is already extremely weak it's going to revive enlargement so which has been stalled for a decade and so instead they may do some crazy thing and like extend you know membership to ukraine but they're not going to be able to fill into the u.s military i think that's a good note to end lily lynch thank you so much for joining us everyone check out lily's work she's uh more most recently at the new statesman and we'll talk to you all again soon bye bye thank you